Well, if you please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I will allude later on to Psalm 49, uh, verses 7 through 9, but uh, we won't read that right now. So just uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Uh, please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our Lord. The author of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write this word again upon our hearts this morning. Well, please turn in your order of worship to the confession, confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together part of Lord's Day 6. We'll finish our consideration of Lord's Day 6 next week. Uh, so we're considering part of Lord's Day 6, question and answer 16 through 18. 16 through 18. Remember, we are in the grace or salvation section of our catechism. The three main sections are guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service, whichever uh, you want to use. And so we are considering God's grace for us in this plan of salvation that's fulfilled and accomplished in Christ. So I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 16 asks, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. Question 17 asks, why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Question 18 asks, Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time, a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. Well, if you think with me uh, for a few moments about those times where you have encountered something especially beautiful in God's creation. It might be the majesty of the mountains or the expanse of the ocean or the, the calm that a, a sunset gives. Those moments where we encounter God's creation just sort of leaves us awestruck. We might have a similar experience when we encounter a human being, a person, in their element, doing something spectacular. A musician, an athlete, an artist. I remember watching a year or so ago the 
you, you all may have seen this documentary of, of a rock, the rock, I forget what his name is, but the rock climber who free climbed Half Dome without, without being harnessed in. It was an amazing feat uh, for a human being to accomplish. So there's moments when we encounter God's creation or uh, another person doing something utterly spectacular. It, we have that, that moment where we can't really think or speak about anything else except beholding what's in front of us. It invokes awe and wonder and, and just beauty. This is fitting. This is good. This is proper. This is how things should be. Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, which is a few verses before uh, the passage which we read, the author of Hebrews says this, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author of the Hebrews says that it's fitting that the way that God accomplishes salvation comes through his son being made perfect through suffering. That's fitting. And the same word then for fitting is used in Hebrews 7.26, where the author says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. It's fitting that we should have a high priest such as Christ. Now this word fitting refers to that which is seemly or becoming or suitable. It has connotations of aesthetic beauty. So what we're told here, as we will be considering the nature of our high priest and his divinity and humanity and why that's necessary for our salvation, what we're told by the author of Hebrew, Hebrews is that we should engage in this enterprise with a worshipful attitude. Like that of when we encounter the beauty of creation or the wonder of a, a person doing something spectacular. As we behold Christ, we should be awestruck. We should recognize this, almost the aesthetic beauty of, of God's plan to save sinners in this way. And we should do so with worshipful hearts. And so uh, this, this morning, I want us to just spend a few moments considering both why it was necessary for Christ to be both God and man, why that was necessary for our salvation, for Christ to be both God and man. We last week considered how animals didn't make the cut. <laughs> they were insufficient in themselves to forgive our sins before a holy God. And so Christ in his person is uniquely suited to do this. But why? Well, I'm only going to spend a few moments on the divinity aspect. But why must he be true God? Well, the answer to that essentially is because salvation is a divine work. It's a divine work. So Psalm 49 points us in this direction. Psalm 49 verses 7 through 9 says, Truly no man can ransom another. No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Truly, no man can ransom another. There we're told that someone who is just human can't redeem another person's life. This is a divine work. 
Furthermore, in Isaiah particularly, we come across many prophecies where God prophesies about this coming work of salvation. And he says that this is going to be a work of God, a work of himself. This is a divine work to redeem Israel, the Israel of God. And so why is it necessary for Christ to be God? Because someone who is only human can't bear the weight of God's eternal wrath for themselves and for all of God's people. This is a divine work. Well, I'd like to now spend most of our time together by thinking about the humanity of Christ, why it was necessary for Christ to be human to accomplish our salvation. So if you look with me at verses 17 through 18 of chapter 2, 17 through 18 in chapter 2, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in these verses, why was it necessary for Christ to take upon himself a human nature like we have? Why was it necessary for Christ to have a human nature, according to these verses? Sean? Your question, just to be clear, yeah. why was it necessary for Christ to have a human nature? Yeah. So, I would imagine part of that was because that human nature had to be tempted. Humans are tempted. So, when Satan went out with him to the hills, Christ was fully divine. Hmm. Right. Yeah, thank you. Both of those comments are helpful. Uh, we do definitely see that temptation aspect of it in verse 18. He was tempted as we are yet without sin. And we also see that, I think, fleshing out, adding to what Britt said, his humanity allowed him to be that merciful and faithful high priest to other humans. And we have examples of that in his earthly ministry, and as we'll see, examples of that even, even now. But more concretely, notice how the, notice the purpose clause in verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So why did Christ take upon himself a human nature? So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. It was necessary for his priesthood to take on human flesh. And here we then see the two aspects of his priesthood. So what's the one aspect of his priesthood at the latter part of verse 17? Yes. For the sins of the people? Yes, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then verse 18, we see that, yeah, he engaged in temptation so that he can do what? Help. Help. 
So the two aspects of his priesthood is he made propitiation and he's a helper. And he needed to be human to do both of those things, both of those aspects of his priestly ministry. So first, let's think a little bit about the propitiation aspect of his work. You can think of the atonement, meaning the death of Christ, as a multifaceted event, sort of like a diamond. You can view it in, from multiple angles and dimensions. So sometimes scripture speaks of the death of Christ as redemption, which means it's dealing with our problem of a debt before God. Sometimes it speaks of the death of Christ as reconciliation, dealing with the problem of our alienation before God. Sometimes it speaks of it as a conquest, dealing with the problem of our enemies. Christ triumphed over the spiritual forces of evil. Sometimes it speaks about his expiation, dealing with our problem of guilt. Well, here, the author of Hebrews says that one purpose of the cross is propitiation. And propitiation refers to uh, the removal of God's wrath. So our sin has earned God's wrath. And propitiation refers to how Christ deals with that problem. The satisfaction of the wrath of God. So if you remember in question answer 11, we confess that we sin against the supreme majesty of God. Our sin is against the supreme majesty of God, and as a consequence, we deserve a supreme penalty. And Christ propitiates the wrath of God, meaning he satisfies God's wrath that we deserve. So boys and girls, you can think of this as a, um, like a train. Imagine, you know, we're sinners, and, our, and we sin willfully. It's as if our sin, our sins are ropes, and we then willfully tie ourselves down to um, um, the tracks of a railroad. Now, obviously, we know if we do that, it's not going to end well for us. So eventually, the train's going to come barreling down. But what the cross is, is essentially Jesus coming, cutting the ropes of our sin, and tying himself down in the ropes of our sin, and bearing the full weight of the wrath of God that we deserved. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And we see this in, on a, many occasions in Scripture, but specifically as Jesus is anticipating his death on the cross and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, laboring before his father in prayer, and he asks his father that the cup may pass. Well, what cup is that? <laughs> the cup of the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, that's how God's wrath is spoken of. It's a, it's a cup of wrath. And we read that Jesus is the one who drinks that cup to the dregs, to the very sentiments of, of the last of that drink. <laughs> he drinks all of it that we deserved. And it caused angst in him in his life. And Jesus had to be human to be able to make that propitiation. As our catechism says, the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has, which has sinned must make atonement or must satisfy for those sins. One of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, says that uh, he had a, a popular phrase that's been quoted quite often, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. Meaning Christ only accomplished salvation to the degree that he assumed our nature. So if Christ only became a spirit, 
only had a spirit, then we would only have the hope of a spiritual redemption. But because Christ had and has both a body and a soul, we have the hope of a spiritual and bodily redemption. That which is not assumed is not redeemed. Positively, that which he assumes, he redeems. According to the justice of God, the same human nature which has sinned needs to make satisfaction for sin. So Christ had to be like us in every way except for that inherited sinful nature that we have from the first Adam. And because of this, we have a hope of bodily resurrection, spiritual resurrection, because Christ himself has a body and a soul. And the reason why this is such good news for us, the idea that Christ propitiated the wrath of God, is think of Psalm 22, a psalm which Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That psalm is first and foremost a psalm about Christ. Christ directly fulfills that. He quotes it as he was indeed forsaken by his father as he drank the cup of God's wrath. Well, once we see that psalm about Christ, then we can see how it applies to us. And that's such good news. The, the reason why this propitiation, this idea of propitiation is such good news to us is because when we feel as if we're going through the valley, when we feel as if we've been forsaken or abandoned by God, we can be assured that because Christ was forsaken for us, that feeling is only a feeling. It's not a reality. Because Christ was forsaken by his Father, no child of God will ever be. This is why this doctrine of propitiation is so comforting to us. The feeling of abandonment is only a feeling. It never corresponds to reality. Because Christ was forsaken on our behalf and in our place. Well, this is the work of Christ's priestly ministry that I would imagine most of us think of. But we celebrate every year on Good Friday. The cross is a, has a central place in Christianity and has had a central place throughout history. But the second aspect of Christ's priestly work is something that doesn't get as much airtime as it were. What we read about in verse 18. This ongoing help that he offers for his church. Again, for because he himself has suffer, suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is present tense. We speak a lot about what Christ did in the past tense, but what is he doing now? As a human. A lot of times I, I don't think we have fully realized that Christ ascended as a human and he still has a human nature and he will return as a human. He didn't give up his humanity when he left this earth. We confess in the Apostles' Creed he's, he's seated at God's right hand in his human nature. So here we see that one of the reasons why he had to be human was so that he could be tempted as we are and thus be able to help us as a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, if you turn your Bible, it's just two chapters over to Hebrews 4.15. We have, in many ways, a restatement of this very same doctrine. Hebrews 4.15. I should mention that our catechism doesn't uh, explicate this aspect of the priestly nature of Christ, mostly, probably because of its limited scope. It, Again, it's a, a summary document. It can't talk about everything, but this is a very important part of, a part of Christ's priestly work on our behalf. 
So Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So how does this verse characterize Christ's ongoing ministry on our behalf? How does this verse characterize? Ashley? He sympathizes with our weakness. Yes. See the double negative there. Two negatives equal positive. We do not have a high priest who is unable, meaning we have a high priest who is able to sympathize, who can do it. And here he mentions the very same thing he mentioned back in chapter 2, that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so he's perfectly suited to sympathize, help us, right now in our current earthly pilgrimage. Now, this touches upon Christ's earthly temptations. Now think about your own temptations. When we're tempted, our temptations come both as external temptations and internal temptations. So let's say someone is um, tempted towards anger. You might have the external threat of someone provoking you, but then you also have the internal temptation of your sinful nature being inclined and desirous to lash out at that person. So you have the external threat, the provoking person, and the internal inclination to speak unkind words. But let's say we act against that desire and we don't speak angry words. That, we still sin because that desire, that inclination is still the, the very seed of sin. If we recognize that the law calls for full conformity, not just in our external deeds, but our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strengths, then even that internal temptation is in itself sin. So how do we think about Christ's temptation? Was he a sinner? See the shaking of heads, that's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, yeah. Yes, yes, that's a great distinction to make. He had external threats throughout his entire life, but he didn't have that internal inclination towards that sin. So we have external threats and external temptation and internal temptation. Christ only had external temptation. Now, we might think about that for a moment and say, wait, he wasn't really tempted as we are because he didn't have that internal temptation. I was reading this week, uh, C.S. Lewis speaks a little bit about this. I think he has a great illustration um, in response to that objection, that question about how Christ's temptations relate to our temptations. So he analogized it with the wind. So imagine temptation is like a strong wind. And fighting temptation is like deciding to go out for a walk or a run straight against that wind. Let's say you decide to do that, and it's, you get about a tenth of a mile, and, and you realize this is difficult, this is not fun, I feel like I'm hardly moving, I'm just going to sit down or turn around. Well, that's like what we do in our lives. We sin constantly, and we don't make it very far against the wind of temptation. We're constantly sitting down and turning around. We give in to temptation. Well, Christ, he 
came to this earth and took that wind head on. He ran a full marathon. You have to imagine that mile 23 is a lot more difficult than one-tenth of the first mile. And so we, in a very real sense, haven't experienced the full force of temptation because we constantly are sitting down turning around. Christ, in that sense, experienced temptation like you and I have never experienced because he went a whole marathon without giving in, without sitting down. You can imagine the exhaustion, the difficulty at mile 24, 25, 26. If we give up at the first tenth of the mile. So I think that's a helpful way to think about it. So yes, there's a difference, but Christ was living and lived a whole life contrary to those temptations, contrary to that wind of temptation. What this means for us then is that we currently have a high priest who sympathizes with us, who desires to help us in our present weaknesses, temptations, failures. Have you thought much about that? We think a lot about the propitiation aspect of Christ, but what about his present ongoing work? That when you're going through the difficulties of this life, the weaknesses of his life, in his human nature, there's a, a real sense where his heart is going out towards you. He doesn't have the attitude of, why can't you just get your act together? It's one in which he truly feels what you feel, sympathizes with your weaknesses in his human nature. You know, I was listening this past week to a lecture on, on abuse that it was a, 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 talk given by a, a talk given by a theologian, one of our sister churches, another URC congregation. And this uh, theologian was quoting a um, contemporary secular journal, academic journal. And this journal said that findings, research shows that really the only social interaction that has been shown to help victims of abuse has been being listened to and believed by others. So basically being able to share their story and having people believe their story. It's pretty profound that that's the only social interaction that has been shown to help people who've experienced um, abuse. Being listened to and then believed by others. Now of course, whenever we do share our struggles with other people, no one can perfectly relate to us. Even those who've gone through exactly what we've gone through. No one is exactly like us. No one has circumstances exactly like us. But just the, just the fact of being somewhat known by others is so comforting. It's one of the main benefits of community. Well, what this passage shows us then is that we have someone who knows us perfectly, who can relate to us perfectly no matter what we're going through in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was tempted. He experienced life in this fallen world weaknesses of the flesh. And he knows you in particular. So this is a, a very comforting doctrine for us to rest in. When we go through the dark days, the valleys, the, the realities of living in, a, living in a fallen world that we all are enduring to some extent or another.
Another aspect of this ongoing ministry of Christ is that he prays for us. He intercedes for us. We see this on a number of occasions in Hebrews and elsewhere. For example, Hebrews 7.25 refers to this. And again, think about that for, for a moment. Jesus prays for us. We all probably, if I were to ask you, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand and, and for those who think they have a robust prayer life and pray as much as they should, I would imagine that there'd be very few hands in the air. We all, I think, recognize we don't pray as much as we should. Therefore, we should rest in the fact that we have a high priest who prays for us night and day, and his prayers, because they are prayed according to the will of God, are always answered. So Christ, whatever situation you're going through, Christ is praying for you according to the will of God. So we have a high priest who helps us, who sympathizes with us, who intercedes and prays for us. And whatever it is that we're going through. If we keep your finger in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses uh, 14 through 16. So we read verse 15, and this is sort of, the first 15 is the indicative, the gospel declaration. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us. But then verse 14 and 16 function as the imperatives, how we are to respond to this gospel truth. So in verse 14, we are called to hold fast our confession. And the ground of that imperative is that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the reason why we can persevere in this life is because of the reality of our high priest. The reason why you can hold fast to your confession of hope is because of a merciful and faithful high priest. Christ is the one who propels us, puts wind in our sails, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, to keep going. But then look in verse 16. The other response we are to have is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the help of need. Now what's What's this calling us to do? What does it mean to draw near to the throne of grace? To meditate on it and remind ourselves and let it like sink in. Mm -hmm. And what? Pray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pray. Um, it can, yeah, it can be worship in general. Um, Lauren alluded to, but I think specifically prayer. <laughs> We now can, through Christ, boldly access the throne of grace, not in an earthly sanctuary, but in the heavenly sanctuary, with confidence. Something that the Jews of the Old Testament couldn't even do on an earthly level. They couldn't confidently approach the inner sanctum of the temple. But we can boldly, with confidence, approach the heavenly sanctuary with confidence because of our high priest in Christ. And so we are called then in response to this to pray through the mediation of this high priest. And we should be expectant. We should expect to receive mercy and grace in the time of need. We should have that expectation, similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, that when we're anxious, we are called to pray. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayers and supplications, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
So because we have this merciful and faithful high priest, we can persevere and hold fast. And we are to go boldly to that throne of grace, expecting to find mercy and grace to sustain us. So again, why was it necessary for Christ to take upon himself a true human form and nature? So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest, not only to make propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God, but also so that he could be an ongoing help towards us in this present age. As he ministers on our behalf, helps us and prays for us. One last thing I want to mention is I thought last week how uh, um, author of the Hebrews talks about Christ sitting at God's right hand. And that symbolizes rest. Christ finished the work of salvation. Nothing needs to be added to it. But we also hear about Christ standing in heaven. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that there's still an ongoing work that Christ is doing for us. So in a sense, his work is finished and yet ongoing. Nothing needs to be added to make us part of his family, but yet he is still ministering on our behalf as he helps us, sympathizes with us, and intercedes on our behalf. 